The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Well, this morning's sermon is going to be a little different. I'll just go ahead and sort of say that out out front. Um, Much more of a teaching than a a preaching. Because there's some... There's some issues to handle in the text um, to try to get a good grasp on. And I, and I do want to just spend some time understanding some of the background that works itself into this text in the, in the life of a Jew. Some of the, the background of what the disciples understood um, needed to take place and what they thought that would look like and, and how they're wrestling putting all of these, these things together. These disciples have seen and heard a great deal over these last days. There's a, there's a shift in, in Mark 8 where Jesus sort of, for the, for the most part, concludes his public ministry. And there's still... I mean, you, you saw in the end of Mark 8, he called the crowds to himself, but his attention now is, is turning both to his disciples and to Jerusalem to, to, to go there to, to be crucified. And as he turns his attention to the disciples, I mean, things really begin to ramp up as far as what, what their understanding is. They have an understanding of who Jesus is. There's, there's, I mean, there's no way for them not to. We see that in Mark 8 when Jesus says, Who is it that you say that I am? And, and Peter responds that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, um, the Son of the living God. And so they understand that he is the Messiah, but they don't yet fully and rightly understand what that means and, and what that looks like. That is why, after that, when Jesus tells them that he must suffer and die, Peter has the response that he has. This is, this is Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He said this plainly. In other words, he'd been, he'd been teaching in parable, but this was no parable. This was just as clear as it could be. He said it plainly. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him for it. Because that didn't fit into this concept of what the Messiah was going to do. And so Peter rebukes him for it. But Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, "Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your things on the, uh, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." So, I mean, you can imagine their world is rocked in that moment, and they're struggling to understand what this means. Right after that, Jesus begins to teach them more to say that, "Look, if you're going to follow me, then you." must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That to follow me is to suffer. To follow me is to die. To follow me is to bear the reproach that I will bear. 
Again, certainly they, they had no category for this. Then coming right off of that, they're led onto the top of a mountain. And there, Jesus reveals his glory to them. And they are visited by Moses and Elijah. And if that's not enough, God himself comes in the cloud and speaks to them. Right? So, I mean, you sort of try to put yourself in their place that, you know, over the span of, of, a, of a week or two, all of these things are happening. And you can imagine um, the, the, the confusion that must be setting in for them. There, there would be, for these three in particular, James and Peter and John, who, who witnessed the transfiguration, there would have been no doubt in their mind that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Because they just saw his glory. They saw Moses and Elijah talking to him. They heard the voice of the Lord out of the cloud say, This is my beloved son. There is no doubt that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. But they are still unable to put all the pieces together because... It goes totally against what they have been taught and what they expected the Messiah to be and the Messiah to do. We must understand their background and the background of um, Judaism in terms of the Messiah and the resurrection. So let's talk just for a second about the messianic understanding that they would have had. And this is... This is a 30,000-foot view of what they expected. A Jew would have known, would have been eagerly expecting, and are still expecting today for Messiah to come. That there would be one who comes. That God's chosen one would come to the earth. And that when he comes, he would come in judgment and would come conquering his enemies. And that in coming, the Messiah would bring salvation to the Jews. But they understood this salvation to be the elevation of Israel to world supremacy. That the Messiah would come as king of Israel and would rule over the world as king of Israel from Jerusalem. And that as divine ruler... Messiah would crush any rising evil and in his divine rule over all nations, he would usher in peace and joy and that the world would worship him. It is an, an, an understanding of geopolitical rule. And it would be God ruling on his throne from Jerusalem 
over Israel, much like David, supremacy over the whole world, crushing his enemies, defeating evil, ushering in joy and peace, right? That's what they expected Messiah to do. This is what they thought the kingdom of God would look like. This is why in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, so when they had come together, they asked the risen Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Because that's what they expected, for Rome to be vanquished, for Israel to be restored, and for Jesus to rule from Jerusalem over the world. This is what Messiah is going to do. So when Jesus tells them that he must be arrested, and he must suffer, and he must die, and he must rise again, it went against everything they knew and expected. That's why Peter rebukes him. Now, you've missed it. Jesus, you've missed it. You've not understood what you're supposed to be doing. They also had an understanding of resurrection. And this is, this is the conversation that they're having as they come down the mountain about the resurrection. Because the Jews believed in a bodily resurrection. They saw resurrection as the sign of the end of days. As the sign of the end of the world. That it would be the forerunner for the final judgment. When resurrection would happen, final judgment would come. So they are totally confused as to what Jesus is talking about and how it all works together. That he's Messiah, that he must be raised from the dead. Remember, this is a conversation that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are having together. They're totally confused. This is why Jesus tells them in Mark chapter 9, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That's why Jesus tells them to wait until they see it all, to wait until they get it all and they're able to rightly put the pieces together because at this point, they don't understand it. But once he's risen from the dead, then they would get it, right? Once the Spirit of God comes, then, Jesus says, then you will go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Once they're able to put the pieces together of what the kingdom of God is, what the salvation of the Messiah is, and how his resurrection works in it all. But up until this point, they don't get it. See, they would need to understand that the cross and the resurrection stands at the center of what God means with the kingdom of God. They had no category for that. They had no category for that. They had no category for the resurrection of Messiah. The Messiah would bring a resurrection. 
that would be the end of the days and it would set up Israel to rule over the world. They haven't connected all the dots. And quite frankly, that's to be understood. We don't need to give them too hard of a time. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in their position. And this, these are the things that they've been taught forever. I mean, you imagine this is what you've been taught forever. This is what you've been eagerly waiting. This is what generation after generation after generation, they have been eagerly waiting and being taught the Messiah will come, the Messiah will come, the Messiah will come. And now here he is and you get to be with him and you know that's him, but it's not going exactly how you thought it would go. You see, they had some preconceived notions that kept them from rightly understanding. And I wonder if that just might be true of us as well. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead would mean. Because they thought that would mean the end of the world would be immediately ushered in. So in their minds, Jesus is saying, I must rise from the dead. Well, then that's the end. So they asked him in verse 11, if that's the case, Jesus, if you are to die and to rise again, and that's coming quickly, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, in their mind would have been a couple of of Old Testament prophecies from Malachi. Malachi 3, 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is messianic prophecy that the Messiah would come, but before he comes, there would be one who will prepare the way for him. There would be a forerunner. They would have understood that because that would have been the practice in their day. Whenever a king would go to a foreign land, they would send a herald to ready the people for his arrival, right? He wouldn't just show up. There was no CNN, Fox News, You know, he's on his way. They would send someone to go to say, the king is coming. Let us prepare for his arrival. That was a forerunner. That was a herald. They understood that idea. And there was Old Testament prophecy that there would be one who would come to prepare the way for Messiah. Malachi then goes on to tell us who that forerunner would be. In Malachi 4, 5 and 6, behold... I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So their question then is, Jesus, if you are Messiah, which they believed he is, and if you are going to be risen from the dead, which in their minds would be the awesome day of the Lord. And that sounds like it's going to happen soon. Then what about Elijah? Are the prophets wrong? Is the prophecy wrong? Are the scribes wrong? Are the teachers wrong? Wrong. Now, there's so much 
many different opinions when it comes to this text and the role of Elijah and who was Elijah that is to come and all of those things. And there's a big piece of this puzzle that is just interesting to me. And I don't have a good grasp on it. But I can't help but think, boys, you just saw Elijah. Like you just saw him. Literally him. Here he is. You know, you know, like, it's just funny to me. They see Elijah, and then they say, Jesus, well, isn't Elijah supposed to come? Because Elijah just, I mean, literally Elijah just came. But the piece of the puzzle that's missing there is this restoration ministry of Elijah. That Elijah would come and would, would restore things, turn the hearts of his fathers to their children, the hearts of their children to their father. So they didn't, they didn't witness this. And so... Is he going to prepare the way for you to set up your rule or not? I think they probably were confused when he was gone. They probably thought, all right, here he is. Here's Elijah. He's here. Let's go. You know, let's all, let's all march down to Jerusalem. Let's do it. Elijah, you're in the front because you're preparing the way. And you're ushering in this restoration. They're seeing you. They're seeing Messiah. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's set up the rule and reign of Jesus. And then bam, he's gone. And now what about this? How does all this go together? You're going to Jerusalem, but you're going to die. So they're confused. Verse 12, and Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now before we get into what does Jesus mean when he says Elijah has come, there's one thing that we must first see in this, and that is that in this moment, Jesus is affirming the Scriptures. He is, he is confirming and affirming and reminding them that the Holy Scriptures are right and that all things prophesied about Him and all things in the, in the Word of God will come to pass. And that's vitally important for us to be reminded of. That what you hold in your laps is the true and trustworthy words of God. And it can be trusted. He says that he must come first. And when he does come, there will be a restoration. But it will be a spiritual restoration. See, I think this is one of the pieces of the puzzle that they're missing. Because they're not looking for spiritual restoration. They're looking for physical, geopolitical, the restoration of, it, of the nation of Israel to its rightful place to be ruler of the world. But that's not what Malachi says. What did Malachi say? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers. That this restoration that 
Elijah brings that the, the part of, of him being a forerunner is that he will prepare the way for Messiah spiritually, that there will be a spiritual restoration. And Jesus says he has come. And he has. He had just come, literally. But it's not only that he had just come literally, he had also come typically. But that word typically does not, is not used in the way that we use the word typically. Typically. You see what I did there? Um, it's, he has come in type. That there was one who had come like Elijah or as Elijah. This is Luke 1, 14 through 17. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is John the Baptist. This is the prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist as he is in his mother's womb, that he is the one that is prophesied to come to prepare the way with a spiritual restoration of a remnant of Israel to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That John would not be literally Elijah reincarnated, but that he would be one like Elijah, whose ministry was to turn the hearts of Israel back to God. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. This is Matthew 11, starting in verse 10. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, that covers everybody, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is Jesus confirming that this forerunner role prophesied in Malachi was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. But they didn't accept it. Did they? They did not accept John the Baptist during his ministry here on earth that he was the one 
foretold to come. Instead, just as they wanted to do Elijah, they wanted to kill him. But instead of taking him to heaven like Elijah was, he was killed because he was rejected. The Jews still didn't see it and believe it. We know that to be the case. They were still looking for Elijah. This is Mark 8, where Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, and he says, you know, who is it that they say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And he told them, some say John the Baptist, reincarnated, and others say Elijah, that you're the one who is to come to prepare the way. Or others, one of the prophets. So here are the disciples, their worlds being totally rocked, everything they've ever believed and understood of how things were going to take place. Jesus is telling them basically the complete opposite, that he must suffer and die and be risen from the dead. And they're going, well, then what about this issue of Elijah? And Jesus is saying, there is one who has already come like Elijah. And he was rejected. And Jesus just sort of leaves it there and follows that up instead with his own question. So they asked Jesus a question. What about Elijah? Is he to come? The scribe's right or the scribe wrong? And Jesus just answered him. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he asks them this question. So you're worried about how that's going to happen. But what about the pieces that you're missing? And how is it written of the son of of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Right? You guys, you're confused as to what I mean when I say I must be betrayed and be treated with contempt and suffer and die. You're worried about this prophecy of Elijah. Well, what about all these other places in the scriptures where it says Messiah must come and suffer? There are lots of places I'll just offer you three from the Old Testament. We can start in the very beginning. The very first mention of the promised Messiah in Genesis 3.15. God speaking to the servant. The serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That there would be a bruising of Messiah that is to come. We go Psalm 2. Verses 1 and 2, why do the nations rage against the peoples and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves as the rulers, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're going to set themselves up against me. Why is this shocking to you? Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that they, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. If there's prophecy that I'll be pierced. You know, what does that mean, guys? Come on. And then let's just take all of Isaiah 53. So how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt, guys? That's there too. 
right? It's not how you think it will be. And what I'm telling you is not wrong and what I'm telling you is not against the, the Holy Scriptures. It's a both and it's an and. Elijah will come and Elijah has come. The kingdom of God will come and I will suffer. And I will both die, but I will both rise again and rule eternity as the king of kings. And there was one like Elijah who would come to restore a remnant of Israel. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did in keeping with the prophecies. And Messiah would come and suffer and die and rise again in keeping with the prophecies. The understanding of what Jesus is saying here is a confirmation that this has been God's primary plan all along. And now we, by His grace, have been. And if you've not received His grace, you can be brought into the remnant and be saved to live eternity in his kingdom. Now, all of that conversation sets up this conversation in Mark 9, 30 through the end of the chapter. It all flows together. But goodness, we don't have time for that this morning. So looking at the scriptures, and like I said, that's a lot of, of, of teaching. You know, it's said that a, that a, it can't be a sermon without a summons. In other words, there needs to be something we can do, right? This isn't just a seminary lecture. But we come to God's word and we say, all right, God, what do you have for me but from this text? So I just, I want to offer four quick things. I'm not even going to expound on them. What's our takeaway? The first is, our takeaway from this should be that the cross and the resurrection stand central to the kingdom of God. And it always has. It always has. It is the means by which your sins are forgiven. It is the means by which the kingdom of God is established. And you are a sinner. And you need that forgiveness. And the way God brought that forgiveness to the world is through his son Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And if you want his forgiveness and you want to be a part of his rule and reign for eternity, then you must repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ stands at the center of the kingdom of God. Second, all of Scripture is trustworthy. Every bit of it. Thirdly, do not let your preconceived ideas keep you from seeing things the way they really are. And how can we know the way they really are? Well, we do exactly what God just told Peter, James, and John to do. 
listen to him. Listen to him. And fourthly, keeping it in the overall context of where we've been in Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 8, they killed John the Baptist. They killed the Messiah. Don't be surprised when they want to kill you. Don't be surprised when suffering comes for the sake of Jesus and gladly bear his reproach. You would think after I must suffer and die, you must suffer, take up your cross and follow me. They killed Elijah. They're going to kill me. That the disciples would have got it. They didn't. Hey, which one of us is going to be able to sit by you in glory? That's coming. It's a helpful reminder for me and it's a helpful reminder for you in the context of the overall scriptures in this section to be reminded that we must joyfully bear the reproach of Jesus. When we rightly understand the cross at the center of the kingdom of God, suffering at the center of the kingdom of God, then we are not so surprised by suffering when it comes to our doorstep. God, would you, by your grace, take your scripture... Would you plant it deep into our hearts? Yes, it is helpful to understand the meanings of the Scripture. Yes, we must understand the meanings of the Scriptures. But more than that, God, we must not only read the Scriptures, we must have the Scriptures read us to illumine in us where there is a need for repentance to lead us to greater faith. God, would you do that in us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.